at the intersection of ideas and action. This is Longitude Soundbites, where we bring innovative insights from around the world directly to you. I'm Tony Zhou, a Longitude Fellow at Yale University. Welcome to our latest episode in Series 5 of Longitudes of Imagination. Throughout this series, we've invited members of the U.S. National Marine Sanctuaries to share their experience towards the Sanctuary Soundscape Monitoring Project. Sanct Sound is a collaborative project between the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the U.S. Navy to better understand underwater sound within the seven national marine sanctuaries in waters off Hawaii and the east and west coasts. Today's episode features conversational highlights I shared with Samara Haver, a postdoctoral scholar at the Pacific Marine Environmental Lab. You'll learn how sounds produced by marine animals, physical processes such as wind and waves, and human activities are measured and assessed. Additionally, Samara kindly shares the technical skill set and personal qualities she believes great scientists possess. I'm a postdoctoral scholar at Oregon State University, and here I work within a cooperative institute that is jointly between NOAA and the Hatfield Marine Science Center at Oregon State University. And a lot of the research I do is with National Marine Sanctuaries, National Marine Fisheries Service, and then the NOAA line office that I'm officially affiliated with through the university is the Pacific Marine Environmental Lab. The theme of our podcast series is on imagination and creativity. And we've been exploring how scientists use their creativity and imagination in their day-to-day work. Just as a starting point, how did you get interested in marine research? And what are some of sort of the pivotal moments when you look back in your uh, career and education background, connected the dots to get to where you are now? So I definitely didn't always plan to become a scientist and certainly not to be a a marine scientist. When I grew up visiting the coast in Oregon with my family, and I always loved playing in the tide pools and going to the beach, but it didn't really connect for me that that was a job you could have, or even really, you know, being a scientist beyond, you know, sitting and looking in a microscope, that that was a career. I was interested in science. And so I thought the natural progression would be um, to study pre-medicine. I really enjoyed learning about the human brain. So I ended up majoring in psychology and neuroscience. I wanted to study cognition. I was interested in how people think and, and perceive things. I also had an opportunity to attend a program called C-Semester. On this program, students live on board a tall ship, learn to sail the ship, and then also do individual oceanography, marine biology projects, which I chose because I just wanted to do something totally different from my major and, you know, get out of the state, see something new. I came to realize, you know, ocean science is something that people do have careers in and that I could study. And so I wanted to bring uh, neuroscience and the marine science together. And that brought me to marine mammals. Marine mammals have really evolved cognition, really complex. 
After college, I eventually had an opportunity to intern at a NOAA research lab in Wattol, and that lab focused on using passive acoustics to study the ocean, kind of bringing together like marine mammals and the cognition. It was studying animal communication um, and using technology to do this research, and I really liked bringing those things together and I thought it was really cool to listen underwater. So after working in that research group for a few years, I decided that I wanted to go to grad school and continue my education. I completed a master's degree at Oregon State University and then I was uh, fortunate to be awarded a fellowship and that allowed me to complete a PhD. Wow, that's so <laughs> I'm actually really interested in this because I've talked to some friends about this. So I, I do a little bit of machine learning research and one aspect of, I guess, just to, to talk about conversationally is learning how different like animals in the world, including humans communicate and encode language. And at least some of the conversations I've had are like how intricate and advanced whales communicate to one another because they will like be super far away. And I'm like, probably totally off when I say this, but they'll like send a message to one another and it'll like, they'll get it. And then they'll meet at like the exact location of somewhere. Um, <laughs> is, that, is that true? I'm not sure. We don't really know what they're, you know, saying, if you will, to each other. Um, it yeah. could be something like that, but certainly the communicating over super long distances, whales, especially baleen whales communicate at these really low frequencies, which travels really efficiently underwater. Sound travels four times the speed it does in water as it does through the air. And then the really low frequency sounds don't lose as much energy as they're traveling. It's just, they're just pressure waves. So they can travel for these really long distances. So yeah, potentially big baleen whales are communicating over many, many kilometers, depending on other things in the environment it's quieter and noisier would you say that they communicate via like code like digital code in, in a way or or no that's like different because like we use words to as, as a way of encoding our language and meaning don't whales and I'm, I'm not sure if other marine animals do this but they use like frequencies and kind of like yeah like bite-sized code different species have different vocalizations like People think about dolphins whistling and like humpback whale song. And then some species use echolocation, which is like a sonar, basically, which they can use to like find prey or, or detect other things in their environment. The really long distance communication. Yeah, different species have different sounds, which as scientists, we're able to listen to those and then know what, what species right. it is. Okay. Uh, would you mind going more in detail about the current projects that you're working on right now? I have a bunch of different projects, but really the unifying theme of them is trying to understand the soundscape of different environments and understand the what we call the acoustic habitat for these animals. So soundscapes are sounds from animals themselves and, and fish and shrimp, any biological creatures. And then there's also sounds from the environment like wind and rain and ice, volcanoes, and then sounds from humans, from cargo vessels, from cruise ships, from sonar, seismic air guns, anything that humans are doing that's that's adding sound into an environment. And so because a lot of marine animals rely exclusively on sound to 
communicate, to find food, to navigate, avoid predators, because the ocean is so dark, it washes away scent. Um, really, sound is what these animals evolved to rely on. So when it's too noisy from other sound sources, then it becomes a conservation issue for these animals because they're not able to, to basically live out their life history and survive. I see. So like, is the amount of sound that like additional noise from outside of the environment that gets into the ocean that disrupts like their way of living and their way of life? I mean, there's different ways that that sound can be disruptive. You know, it could just be an animal notices a sound or we could have something which we call masking, which means that maybe one animal is trying to communicate to another animal, but it's too noisy because there might be a vessel passing above them or seismic air gun survey happening nearby and they can't, the signal can't be received. Um, yeah. Or, you know, a sound is, is really noisy in their environment and that could potentially cause an animal to surface too quickly um, or it could cause hearing damage. Mm -hmm. So there's different ways that it's, it's a spectrum of ways that additional sound can be harmful. Right. And what I'm particularly focused on is looking at chronic noise. So NOAA has ways, scientists have ways of measuring sound from loud sources that have a very clear stop and start point and saying, how loud is too loud and, and when is this basically too much and when it might be harmful. But when we're talking about things like shipping noise or continuous vessel noise that goes on and on without a really clear start and end point, it's hard to define how, how much that could be harmful or even being able to say that it's harmful at all because you can't really isolate it in the same way as, you know, a single, a single loud sound. Right. Would like vessels be one of the biggest contributors to this additional sound and noise or are there other sort of like in the top five or top three rank? Yeah, so it comes from all different sources, but when we study sound in environments, terrestrial or marine, we're looking at the frequency or the pitch of the sound and then also the intensity. And mm -hmm. so when we're when I'm looking at, at vessel noise and these chronic sources of noise and how that might impact baleen whales, I'm focused exclusively on low frequencies, really low pitch sounds that can travel quite a distance in the ocean. So there's also high pitch sounds that can be disruptive, but those we are kind of dividing up the yeah. spectrum to look yeah. at, at different sources. Mm -hmm. So when you set up an experiment, then what are some assumptions that you go into that experiment with? So when we set up an experiment to actually get it rolling, basically what we're doing is we're taking an underwater microphone called a hydrophone and putting it in a waterproof pressurized case with a bunch of batteries and um, flash drive cards. And we're leaving that in the ocean to just record the data for us, an audio file, basically, which we can then go back and look at and, and figure out what's going on in the environment. First, we were hoping that our equipment works and that we record good data. We do research ahead of time based on previous studies, based on um, what researchers have found in other fields of where to put these instruments. You know, that this is an interesting environment, important to animals where we want to listen. 
And then we're also hoping that the instruments that we also put in place to help us get the hydrophones back, that those work as well, because we put these in the ocean for sometimes up to two years. You never uh, bring them back up, you just leave them down. Well, no, no, we do, we do. Yeah, uh -huh. so they're anchored to the seafloor, depending on how deep it is, they're either sitting on the seafloor, if it's say less than 100 meters, or if it's much deeper, they're suspended in the water column and we use a, a float to kind of keep the instrument in place, but there's no surface expression. So we can't just, you know, reach down and, and pull it up the way you might with a buoy. We have these acoustic releases that when we go back to the site, we can use essentially a, a special instrument to talk to the releases and tell the release to unhook itself from the anchor and then the float will bring the, the hydrophone back to us. They're archival, the ones that, that I work with primarily. So that means we don't get any data back until we get the instrument. So we kind of always have our fingers crossed, you know, putting it in, bringing it back, hoping that everything right. went well so that right. we can do the next steps of the research. Have you ever lost equipment to the ocean? Yes, unfortunately, it, oh, it happens. You know, sometimes yeah. things just don't work right. The most disappointing is that when you get it back and then there isn't any data on it. Is that because the instrument wasn't able to capture it or there just weren't any animals that went by? I mean, when something happens with the instrument and we don't even oh, have okay. data to look at. If we get the data back and we don't hear any animals, well, then that's, you know, that's an interesting result oh, okay. because we're learning something about that environment. You know, how come we didn't hear any animals? What's going on here? Okay. Well, let's say you, you get the data, you've analyzed it. What are some conclusions or maybe solutions, but maybe that's a better word. What, what are some solutions that you and your team um, and maybe people in this field have come up with to reduce the noise? Because I don't think vessels are going anywhere anytime soon. Like, I think they're probably just going to, you know, be in the ocean. And it seems like with ocean research and the way that the world wants to expand cities there's probably going to be more things put into the water so what are some solutions for how to like declutter and remove this noise so first of all you're exactly right and and ships are getting bigger and faster and we know that bigger and faster ships are noisier so sound levels from vessels are increasing and then we also know that animals are impacted by this and so trying to figure out how to do something about it. Some of the projects that I'm working on are with National Marine Sanctuaries and also with the National Park Service is we're interested in what kind of management actions might be appropriate um, for, for animal conservation. So like you said, vessels aren't going away, but managers do have some tools like a voluntary vessel slowdowns during certain times of the year when we know that sensitive species are present or monitoring particular areas during certain times of the year. So Glacier Bay National Park is a great example of this during the summer months, which is the peak tourism season in Southeast Alaska. It's also when humpback whales are there um, feeding and, and harbor seals are breeding there. And so they have a vessel quota system, which essentially restricts the number of vessels that can go in and out of the park. It's harder in, in more open areas, but 
some of the questions that that we are asking is looking at these environments and trying to get baselines to understand you know what what's going on here what animals are here places that aren't as well studied as glacier bay for example and the question is when are animals here when do they need management actions or do they need management actions at all because if we put a hydrophone down and we listen to the environment and sure maybe there's some vessel noise but we also might hear a ton of sound from animals and it doesn't as far as we can tell the vessel noise isn't overwhelming the soundscape in the same way that it might be in a kind of more urban area more urban soundscape then we have a different a different situation there's only so many resources available for for these types of management actions even if it's just you know the time that people have to commit towards these problems so trying to identify where attention should be where where resources should be directed right and so so it seems like currently is kind of in the developmental stage of like coming up with where things are needed and and that sort of at what rate and what quantity but what is the ideal hope that these experiments kind of lead to eventually it's a great question and i i'm a scientist not a policymaker but uh-huh. the cool thing about sound and ocean noise as some people would describe it is that it's not like other types of pollution you know if you just stop the sound source it just goes away there's no cleanup obviously harm can be done but it's not like an oil spill where it can take you know decades to clean up the sound is just it's just energy it just dissipates so a lot of focus on on mitigating sound is looking at vessel technologies how to make vessels quieter and what needs to be done to potentially retrofit older vessels and and designing newer vessels that are quieter and then looking at where vessels are are moving in the ocean. Are there particular shipping lanes or routes that intersect with important habitats for endangered or threatened species? Right. Okay. So a lot of pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, no, this sounds very complex, but also very interesting at the same time. Do you have any unexpected results that you had that was either very motivating in a way that uh, surprised you in a very positive way or unexpected results that maybe you had hoped or expected something and didn't come out that way? Sure, yeah. So that has happened many times for the years that I've been doing this science. But an example in this case would be one of my dissertation chapters. I looked at the overall soundscape in Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. We'd never done any recording there and trying to look at the soundscape and understand the, the different sound sources. Cordell Bank is right near San Francisco and, and Oakland. And so it's a major shipping port, a lot of vessels going in and out, delivering to those major ports. One of the parts of the project was looking for vocalizations from specific baleen whale species to identify them in different times of the year that area had a voluntary vessel slowdown in the in the winter months and what we actually found is by using passive acoustics to supplement existing uh, visual observations we found that whales were likely in the area in an extended season beyond what was already known from the visual observations so that was a cool result because it gave national marine sanctuary managers and and scientists and stakeholders information that whales were there during these other times of the year 
and potentially looking at adapting management in response to that. Yeah. Okay. So now just some rapid fire questions for students um, who are interested in marine research, whether they started already in marine research or they started in a different field and want to get into marine research. What are some uh, advice that you would have for them to either continue down the course or pivot into this field? It's important to not only master a field that they're interested in, but also practice writing and public speaking and skills to work with other people. These aren't things that are necessarily emphasized as much in the sciences. There's a lot of, you know, coding and and science classes, but to be a successful scientist, you also need to be able to write and talk about it. What do you think are qualities outside of, let's say, professional skill set that one would have to have to be a successful scientist? I would say determined. You know, it's important to not give up at roadblocks. And then they have to be passionate because it's really hard to convince other people to to care about these things if you don't write yourself. Yeah. Do publications matter? Unfortunately, yes. Why unfortunately? Well, because I think publications are only valuable if other people can read them. And it costs a lot of money to publish open access. And that's a big hurdle for students who are already trying to raise money for their research projects, for their own tuition, et cetera. And there's also a lot of emphasis on on these scientific manuscripts, which aren't necessarily written in a publicly accessible way. So yeah, it's really important because that's how we document the science, but it takes time away from telling other people, finding ways to communicate it in in less technical uh, ways. And also it's really expensive. Yeah, Yeah. no, absolutely. Would you recommend uh, students to pursue a PhD if they wanted to do marine research? If they love doing research, they should pursue a PhD because that is, that's the whole job is doing research. So if you love it, then it's a fantastic opportunity. It was really interesting to hear how Samara transferred her background in psychology to wildlife sciences, where she now explores the acoustic habitat of marine animals. As a conservation challenge, analyzing these soundscapes to better understand how sound could disrupt an animal's behavior is a critical step towards developing solutions to protect the ocean and marine life. We hope you enjoyed today's segment. Please feel free to share your thoughts over social media and in the comments, or write to us at podcast at longitude.site. We would love to hear from you. Join us next time for more unique insights on Longitude Soundbites.